0: Genesis 45 verses 1 to 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, "'I am Joseph. Is my father still living?' But the brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "'Come close to me.' When they had done so, he said, "'I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here.'" because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshem and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly, Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him.
1: Good evening. Good evening. My name is Yana Browning, and I'm on staff here at HT. Keep that um, bit of the Bible open if you've opened it. We've been working our merry way through the life of Joseph, and we have reached the finale, friends. This is it. Um, The golden uh, moment at the end. This is the wonderful part where everything comes together, um, and the mastery, the mastery of God's plan comes out in full technicolor. Would you pray with me as uh, we dive into this? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, that in it we see your faithfulness that we've just been singing about. We see your faithfulness over and over again. And we pray, Father, that you would use your word this evening to speak to us. Would you show us your faithfulness in new ways? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are at the finale of Joseph's career. Last week, we were left on a bit of a cliffhanger, if you were here last week. Um, I mean, it, was, it, it, it is a bit emotional in this chapter, but it was emotional last chapter as well. Joseph, unrecognized by his brothers, has put them under huge pressure to make the same bad decision that they'd made 20 years earlier when they sold him into slavery. But they passed the test um, with extraordinary humility and repentance. Judah was on his knees last week, if you remember begging for his brother Benjamin's life. And here we read that Joseph can't contain his emotion, and the whole truth bursts out of him. And as he reveals who he really is to his brothers, he reveals God's greater plan, not just for him personally, but also for the whole land of Egypt, and for his brothers' lives, and for his father's life also. And when Joseph explains this greater plan, this bigger picture of what God's been doing all along, we can learn a few things about how God God works. We're going to glean three ways that God works um, from this finale, and we'll take them one at a time before we consider um, briefly what difference it might make to our lives today. So that's the plan. Three ways that God works. Number one, God sometimes works undercover. He works undercover. The first way we see here is that he works undercover. So far in Joseph's story, God has been given almost no direct credit for anything. It's not like other places in the Bible where we hear um, hear it say, you know, God sent so-and-so or God caused so-and-so. There's almost none of that in here. It's only the dreams that seem to come directly from God. God has been, until now, an invisible player in this drama. And only now does it emerge that he has been involved, very involved. Joseph says, not once, not twice, but three times, God sent me. It's like God's only been signing His work in invisible ink, and it's only until now at the end that the UV lights come on and we can can see His signature all over everything. Or it's like in the movies, right, a spy movie or an action movie, when at the end, you realize that behind the villain was a super villain. And it's all set up for an even more epic sequel, right? There's been somebody behind the scenes pulling the strings the whole time. I swear that's how James Bond movies work. There's always a baddie behind the baddie behind the baddie. <laughs> and there's something here about God, not the super villain, but the super goodie. In the background, he's had his hand over everything invisibly moving the pieces, the powerful and invisible hand behind the action. God works undercover. And sometimes His presence, His work, is only revealed at the end of the story. So it was for Joseph, so it is for many in the Bible, so it is for us today sometimes. And I don't think this is a surprise to us. I don't think any of us are falling off our chairs in shock with this. It feels often like we're waiting for God to do something. By that we mean we would like to be able to point to something in our lives and say with confidence, that's God's signature. God's doing something there. But often God's work is so undercover that we can assume his default is inaction rather than action. But we have to remind ourselves that God often likes to work undercover. He flies under the radar for years and years sometimes. That doesn't mean he's not doing anything. It just means that he's not signed his work in a way that we can see right now. I think we would like God to be that colleague at work. I'm sure we all have a colleague at work like this. He seems to do a million things at the same time, They're like on the phone and typing and signing something and drinking coffee, and they're like a whirlwind of activity that sweeps through the office doing a million things. We would like God to be like that, but he just isn't. He doesn't show off all the work he's doing. Sometimes it doesn't look like he's doing anything. As Christians, we have to remind ourselves that this is how God is. It's not personal. It's not that He's showing Himself obviously to everybody else, but not to us. He's just keeping us guessing. It's not necessarily a sign that we're doing something wrong, though if we are, that might muddy the waters. God often works undercover. He is a God who hides Himself, as Isaiah says. Now, that doesn't mean that we just shrug our shoulders and we give up looking. But it does mean that in times of suffering, or when God seems absent, we can find hope in the fact that God often flies under the radar. He sometimes works undercover. The second way that we see God work here is unstoppably. God's work is unstoppable. Joseph says to his brothers, it wasn't you who sent me here, it was God. God. And later, this is is outside of our reading, at the very end of Genesis, um, Joseph reiterates to his brothers again. He says to them this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Despite the brothers' best efforts to frustrate or destroy God's plan by removing Joseph from the picture, God's plan came off without a hitch despite circumstances looking very much the opposite, despite the evil that was thrown at Joseph, from his brother's violence, to the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, to the forgetfulness of the cupbearer, nothing deterred God's plan. He was able to work through, despite, and over the actions of human beings. God's plan was unstoppable. Now, we need to tread carefully here for a minute. Joseph does not say to his brothers, "Oh, don't sweat it, guys. You didn't do anything wrong. It was all kind of part of the plan." He says in verse 4, if you have a look, chapter 45 verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, "I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. He's not forgotten that they sold him into slavery in Egypt. He's not brushed that under the carpet. He doesn't ignore what they did. What we see here, are two sets of intentions, God's intentions for good and the brother's intentions for evil at play at the same time. They're not alternative explanations for the same event. It's not like either this is the brother's or it's God. They're both explanations at the same time. They're concurrent. God's actions don't make the brother's innocent and the brother's actions don't make God guilty both god's good intentions and the brother's evil intentions play out at the same time both are fully active and fully responsible now this is a hard nut to crack <laughs> it feels a little bit like something of a paradox right and when it comes to this particular paradox um i find it helpful to to realize that i i assume when i come to something like this i start by assuming that if god is fully responsible. There's no way for human beings to be at all responsible. There's like a fixed amount of responsibility, and we divide it between God and human beings. God's responsible for this bit. Human beings are responsible for this bit. We divide up the responsibility, like say a cheesecake, right? Okay, but life is not like a cheesecake. God's intentions don't operate on the same level as human intentions, such that if God is fully responsible, That human beings cannot be held responsible. It just doesn't work like that. It is true that both God and the brothers are fully responsible for what happened to Joseph. God's intentions always hold. But human beings are still responsible for what they do, for good or ill. We can't see it necessarily here on earth in time and in space and with our human minds how this might be possible, but it's one of the things that we see in Scripture and that we believe about God and His relationship with us. And what we see here is not only that God's intentions were the opposite of the brothers, but that God's intentions prevailed. God's intentions prevailed. His work was unstoppable. And even with a paradox at the heart of it, this is such, such good news. This is such good news on all kinds of levels. This means that God can be sovereignly at work in my life, despite my mistakes, without my mistakes being okay. It means that, like Joseph, other people can wrong me, but God can still use it for good, and I don't have to say their actions were good. I don't have to say their actions were okay. This is a a tiny example of this, but earlier this week, I was um, stressed and really worried about something. It was going round and round in my head. And I was outside HT um, and somebody uh, walking by on the street tried to get in and it it wasn't appropriate for them to be in the building and they were quite aggressive. The the guy was quite aggressive and and all this adrenaline kind of rose up in me. It wasn't very pleasant. But basically, as a result of all the adrenaline, it like emotionally rebooted me. It was like I came out of that. I was like, oh, I can think clearly. I'm not at all stressed about the thing anymore. It's fine. And I moved on. It totally cleared my mind. Now, I can't say that the chap's behavior was okay, because it definitely wasn't. But I can say that God used it for good. He did use it for good, to bless and to help me. God's work is unstoppable. Despite every effort to undermine, destroy, or outmaneuver it, God's plans will hold. God's work is unstoppable. Now, it is perhaps time to ask what the plans of God might be. (laughs) Now that we've discovered that they're virtually, well, they are literally unstoppable, uh, it's probably worth thinking about what they might be. What does God work towards? What is God aiming for? What is He doing here? And this is the third way that we see how God works in this passage, and it's this. God works according to His promises. He works according to His promises, and um, recently, I saw a truly cheesy rom-com on Netflix. I mean, truly cheesy. And in this truly cheesy rom-com, there were a couple of teenagers, they were like 17 or something, and they were deeply in love. And they just started dating, and they made each other solemn vows, and they promised never to break each other's hearts. <laughs> oh yeah. People in movies love to make promises like this. Have you noticed this? They're always, always promising things like, I will never hurt you, or the best of the worst promises. I will never let anything bad happen to you. It's like, yeah, I mean, come on. And, and, and they never learn, right? They just keep doing it. People in movies love making promises. And so, it turns out, does God God is a promise-making God. Have you ever stopped to think about that? He's always making promises to people. Making covenants is another word that the Bible uses. He doesn't leave us guessing. He comes along and says, this is what I'm going to do. I promise. Another film analogy. This is film analogy number three for counting. <laughs> uh, I, if you've watched enough animated movies, you'll notice that there's often a sidekick for the villain, right? Often they're a bit thick, um, they're usually a bit of comic relief, but the villain usually has a sidekick. Um, and one reason why the villain usually has a sidekick um, is because uh, it requires the villain to explain the plan out loud. Right? Because you know, you, you know how this happens, they're like, oh, we're going to do this, ha, ha. And the sidekick's like, what? Huh? How does that work? And he's like, oh, you're so stupid. And he explains the plan again. If the, if the sidekick wasn't there, we'd have no idea what was happening in the villain's head. And all the suspense would be gone. The villain would just be standing there staring at people. And then we, we would know that they were even responsible, right? There's a sidekick there, so we know what the villain is thinking. God has not left us with no idea of what he's thinking or planning. He's not like a villain with no sidekick, just hovering around, not saying anything, and we have to try to guess what's in his head. He hasn't left us clueless. He tells us what he's going to do. He makes promises. He says, this is what I'm going to do, and then he does it. Often, his promises involve the people he makes promises to, right? Like the teenage lovebirds um, in the cheesy rom-com, right? They're promising things to each other. It involves the people he makes promises to. But what we see as a wonderful truth in this this climax of the Joseph story is that he is keeping his promises. He's keeping his promise to Joseph by fulfilling the dreams he gave Joseph as a 17-year-old, and he's doing it in ways that Joseph did not foresee. Joseph had got as far as figuring out his brothers were going to bow down to him, and he liked that bit. And there was, there was a guess in there that that would include his father. Maybe he liked that bit. He would not have guessed that the entire land of Egypt would be included in that dream. He says, um, he explains to his brothers about how God has made him a father to Pharaoh in our passage. And by that, he means Pharaoh's come to seek my advice. He's ruler of all the land of Egypt. God has kept his promise to Joseph, although not how Joseph expected. But it's not just promises to Joseph that are fulfilled here, but also promises to Abraham. In verse 7, if you look at verse 7 with me, Joseph says, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. This is a signal back to what God had promised to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham, which is one of the most important promises in all of Scripture, right? In Genesis chapter 12, this is what he says to Abraham, who's called Abram at the time. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And this is his promise. He's telling us what he's going to do. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And this is an important bit. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, I promise. And Joseph correctly identifies that by saving his family, his immediate family, his brothers, which is to say Abraham's family, that's according to God's promise. God was ensuring that Abraham's family stayed on track to become a great nation. Stayed on track and didn't starve. But even more than that, up until this point in Joseph's story, that last bit, that last crucial bit about all peoples on earth being blessed that hadn't really happened yet in any significant way. But it was always God's plan and God's promise to use Abraham's family to bless all peoples. And it's only here in Joseph's story that God's promise starts to come through. Now, through Abraham, the nation of Egypt is saved from starvation. That's God working according to his promise. And he's like 1% of the way through that promise. He's got one nation out of all peoples. God is working according to his promise to Abraham, though not, importantly, not within Abraham's lifetime. God's promises, it seems, are not always on our preferred timescale. God has all eternity to keep his promise to Abraham. Our God is a promise making God, and he works according to his promises. So those are the three ways that we see here: that God works undercover sometimes; that He keeps His promises; <clears throat> He works according to His promises. Now, what what might this mean for us, um, for us this evening? Um, first and most obviously, uh, it is worth knowing the promises of God. It's worth knowing the promises of God. Um, I have a favorite bookshop, which I'm sure would shock you, but I have a favorite bookshop, and it's in Ely. It's on the high street in Ely. It's just opposite the cathedral. It's a lovely little place. It's just just masses of books, and there's three stories, and it's wonderful. There's a little nook with all the cookbooks, and you can kind of sit in the window. And the best bit is on the first floor, there's a little kitchenette. And if you walk up to this spot, nice and confident, and you ask for a cup of tea or coffee, they will give you a free cup of Yes, free cup of tea and coffee to sip while you browse. What more could you want in life? But this is one of those establishments that's very British and understated. So there's not like any signs announcing this is there. You have to know. You have to know you could get tea and coffee. So you walk up straight up and be really confident and ask. You have to know that it's there. And the same goes with God's promises. If you don't know about them then you can't go up and confidently ask for them and you'll miss out what promises has god made you and me what promises has he made where do we find them we find them right here in this book this this book the scriptures this is a gold mine or to borrow one of Rupert's classic illustrations, uh, why might somebody rob a bank? Because that's where the money is. Why read the Bible? It's where the money is. This is where the money is. This book is full of God's promises to you and me. And it would be a crying shame, a crying shame, even greater shame than missing out on free tea and coffee if we went our whole lives without knowing what he promised us if we cared to claim it. This is where the money is. We see here that God works according to his promises, and it is so, so worth knowing the promises of God. So read this book. This is, this is the point in the year where if we had New Year's resolutions, they might have dwindled out about back a bit, but, but reignite one or start, in, start a New Year's resolution in February. You can do it. Read the Bible. Read the Bible in a year. There's lots of different apps that will help you through that. Um, they're called Bible in a Year. It's um, <laughs> pretty straightforward if you Google it. There's not many alternatives. Um, read this book. Read it for the promises in it. And when you find one, memorize it. Use it to pray. I'll give you an example. I came across a promise um, in here uh, last week that maybe fell off my chair. I just thought it was amazing. So, listen to this. This is what God promises his people through the prophet Jeremiah. Promise. This is what God says I will make an everlasting covenant with them, I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice. In doing them good, and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. I mean, that's, I will never stop doing good to them. I mean, I find that hard to believe, given my life and the lives of those around me. But looking at Joseph's life, maybe it is possible. And he promised And he says, I will will inspire them to fear me. I know that sounds bad, but that's actually my favorite bit of this bit. Why? Because even though it sounds even egotistical, it isn't in the slightest. It's actually just wonderful. To fear God is not like fearing spiders or heights, right? It's not terror or horror. It's awe. It's like what you feel when you look at the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, and it's just so big. And it could kill you like that, but it's beautiful. It's awe. And I thought I had to drum that up in myself before God. But no. He promises that He will reveal Himself, that He will inspire us to fear Him. And I think that's amazing. He says, I will rejoice in doing them good. He doesn't resent having to be good to us. He doesn't get annoyed with us asking Him to be kind to us. He loves being good to us. This is the kind of gem that's in this book. If you've not read it, go for it. Go for it. Know what God has promised you. Don't let it lie there unclaimed. And secondly, with this, um, we'll end. We can rejoice in our good and unstoppable God. Our good and unstoppable God. just before I started my degree I took a gap year and I worked with Christian young people all over the UK I was training them to be leaders, and um, there was one particular session, and I was down in a church on the south coast, and I had a bunch of 11 and 12-year-old lads for the afternoon, and we were talking about vision and what vision was and how you kind of find a vision statement. They had this youth club, and, and so I was trying to get them to think through what they wanted their, like, strap line to be, and they were actually getting really into it. They were having a great time. They wanted to see their friends come to know Jesus, and they wanted to grow and this, that, and the other, and, uh, and towards the end of the session, there was one chap who hadn't said anything, and I could tell he was a thinker, right? He was just pondering everything in his mind. And he hadn't opened his mouth yet. And he just kind of cleared his throat. And then he said something along these lines. He said, there should be something in there that says that we're proud of God. There should be something in there that says we're proud of God. And I'll tell you what, I almost teared up because I think he's absolutely right. We can be proud of this God. This God of Joseph. Joseph is our God. He is unstoppable. He will keep his promises. He can work the most remarkable redemptions out of the worst human tragedies. He can save when we call on him. And yes, we cannot always see what he's doing. And yes, we might not see his promises answered in our lifetimes. But yes, yes, he will keep his promises. I mentioned that in saving Egypt, um, what Joseph calls a great deliverance, how he describes it, God had kept like 1% out of that all people's promise, right? And God hit 100% about 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. That was the promise to Abraham kept, the truly great deliverance. Out of all the evil and suffering that came crashing down on Jesus' head, out of all his enemies meant for evil, God had sent him. He'd sent Jesus as he'd sent Joseph to save lives and to bring a great deliverance. And he did it. He kept his promise. We can be proud of this God who is unstoppable, who will keep every last one of his promises to those who hold on to them. We can rejoice in him and worship him and boast in him and celebrate him. So, we're going to sing together in a minute. But before we do, let me just pray for us. God, thank you so much that you have not left us guessing as to what you're doing that even though we can't see everything, Father, that you have given us your word and that you will be faithful to your word. Thank you so much that you have promised to never stop doing good to us. You have promised that you will inspire us to fear you, to be in awe of you. And Father, we pray that this evening and actually all through this week you'd be opening our eyes to see you at work. To see your faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of other people. And we thank you, God, that you are unstoppable. That none of the forces in this world for good or ill can undermine your plan. We thank you, Father God, for all that you have done and all that you will do.